0: This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, February 14th,
1: 2023. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. We'll take note of Valentine's Day with our militant grammarian, Catherine Schurlds. She's examining some of the ways we talk about love, romance, and sweethearts. Why, for example, do we fall in love? That's in our second half hour on today's show. We're
0: going to begin with workforce and employment. While Arkansas's unemployment rate has been hovering around 3.6% since December, many industries in the state are still facing shortages, especially in skilled and technical labor. One organization is hoping to close that gap. Ozarks
2: at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. For a lot of high school students, the formula for success is clear. Graduate, get a college degree, then go on to a career. But what if that formula isn't working like it used to? Student loan debt is at an all-time high in the U.S. And in Arkansas, the amount of student loan debt totals near $15 billion, according to the Department of Education and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And a labor shortage fueled by the pandemic is prompting many employers to drop barriers like bachelor's degrees in order to fill positions immediately.
3: Post-secondary education. Is not just that four year degree. It could be many other things that don't require near as big an investment, near as long of the time, and can produce results that are significantly greater than what that average college degree success could look like.
2: Andrew Parker is the executive director of Be Pro, Be Proud, Incorporated, an initiative spearheaded by former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson back in 2016. The program, which is run through the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas, seeks to equip more junior and high school-age students for technical skills and workforce training before graduation.
3: We set out on the path to try to address the perception issue that has caused so many people to overlook, look past, or just totally ignore the idea of going to a two-year program, going into a technical certificate program, and coming out and going to work, or leaving high school and going to work directly, and then
2: having a company
3: take on that cost. So the mission of Be Pro, Be Proud is to change the perception students, parents, and teachers have about skilled professions.
2: The program looks at 16 distinct professions, including manufacturing, transportation, construction, and utilities. The program has recently expanded to include fiber optics communication and, this year, forestry services. Be Pro, Be Proud operates mobile workshops, which have made more than 800 stops around the state so far.
3: And that's the key to our success. These mobile workshops, which if you can imagine a semi-tractor trailer driving down the interstate, ours looks identical to it in width and length. But when it's parked, um, it turns into a triple-wide trailer
2: The expandable trailer uses virtual reality technology that gives students a chance to experience different trade practices from working an excavator or driving a tractor trailer to soldering and welding.
3: That becomes a showroom to allow that audience to walk on board, to talk to our team members who have lived this story themselves, and to better understand what this career path might look like and then go put their hands on the simulators that represent the training pieces that they would encounter if they go into any one of these professions in high demand and it demystifies the idea of what they would be doing and what kind of environments they might be working in and what responsibilities look like what income looks like and we have had historically about 30% of the 175,000 students that have come through turn around and say, "Hmm, maybe I want to consider this as my path of first choice."
2: While closing the knowledge gap is a big part of B Pro B Proud's workshops, Parker says the biggest barrier for bringing in new skilled laborers and getting these job opportunities in front of kids is actually perception.
3: Our job is to show them that there is nothing that distinguishes a lawyer or a a doctor or an engineer or an architect in terms of a professional level responsibility. Of course, the skill sets are all different. When it comes down to the kinds of things that any person who is successful is going to have in their back pocket, it is the communication skills, and it's the problem-solving skills, and it's the uh, it's a motivation to to do the work well and do it hard and to be consistent and when you look at those broad spectrum of things, these are all professional level types of responsibilities.
2: And Joe Rollins is the Workforce Development Director for the Northwest Arkansas Council. He says some of the labor shortages that Northwest Arkansas has seen in the past few years is connected to the region's rapid growth, and he doesn't expect that will slow down anytime soon.
4: By our projected figures, we're showing an additional growth of about 60,000 additional people in Northwest Arkansas over the next five years. And that kind of begs the question, where are we going to build the houses? Who's going to build those? All of the trades that go into the construction process. But there's also a ripple effect that touches on these skilled trade fields in terms of logistics. Diesel fleets. Who's going to maintain those fleets? Who's going to drive up those vehicles? Who's going to help us get all of those goods to Northwest Arkansas?
2: He says sectors like construction and trucking are expected to boom in the coming years, and the region, as of right now, just doesn't have the labor force to support it.
4: We have north of 9,000 posted job opportunities available in the region today.
2: And Rollins says that's why he's pushing for more companies to drop some barriers like college degree requirements in order to build up a more specialty-skilled workforce from the ground up.
4: You know, for a long time, Employers were looking for you know, post-secondary terminal graduates, and that was kind of where they stopped. But I'm really trying to embrace this, this model where we can onboard students earlier, invest in them just a little bit, give them a chance to grow up in the company. And uh, will all of our students be ready to go straight to work? Probably not. But I do think a good portion of them could use some work experience, some life experience, especially under the support of an employer who cares and is willing to invest in
2: them. And Parker says his program doesn't discourage students from getting a college degree, but rather shows them there are other options that are just as valuable as college. He says as the price of a college degree and the debt more students are saddled with after they graduate continue to rise, seeking out skilled labor jobs early on in their career can put these young adults at an advantage. The National Center for Education Statistics shows about 40% of job holders post-college graduation go on to a career that did not require any post-secondary education, while some 30% of college graduates end up going into a field unrelated to their degree.
3: When you look at the volume of individuals that are leaving the workforce and the big gaps that are being created but a significant number of medium and small companies that are going out of business for lack of somebody who's interested in taking it over the opportunity for this generation who are on the front end of looking at what a career might look like, have an enormous opportunity to be the next generation of fortune creators. And and it's not going to be anything short of that. For those who decide I want to take this skill set and I'm going to apply it to this type of pursuit, they will create generational wealth, and it will be those individuals that people have looked over or have said they're not good in the classroom, they're they're difficult to deal with. Or, you know those those students are gonna be, are gonna wake up and surprise people.
2: And Rollins says changing the college or work debate is vital to filling the labor gaps we're seeing and bringing in better equipped workers.
4: We have so many employers who are willing to invest in in some of our younger talent, and that would include helping them continue to go to school, refine their training, get stronger at what they do, give them a chance to kind of grow up just a little bit, learn who they are, what they really want to do, maybe more importantly, what they don't want to do but they can do that under the support of an employer who is going to invest in them. So that's an opportunity we really want to express to our students.
2: And already Parker says the Be Pro, Be Proud model has been a success outside of Arkansas. He says they've replicated the program in five other states, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, and New Mexico. And he says they're looking to move to Texas and Delaware in the future.
3: If we continue to figure out how to improve the, the delivery of this for ourselves and other places, I think it will be you know, a nationwide effort before the end of the decade for certain.
2: For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. A state
1: legislative committee meeting yesterday turned contentious over a bill which could make it more difficult for transgender minors to access gender-affirming medical care in Arkansas. Members of the Senate Judiciary Committee heard debate on Senate Bill 199, which would open health care providers to civil penalties for causing injury by providing gender care to minors, like puberty blockers and hormone therapy. Democratic Senator Clark Tucker was the lone committee member to vote against the bill. He said it could set a dangerous precedent where states could weaken rights guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution.
5: What's to prevent another state from passing a law that says every gun dealer who sells a gun is responsible and liable for all damages caused by that gun for a statute of limitations period of 30 years? Now, that's not infringing on the Second Amendment because the state's not saying you can't own a gun. It's just a private right of action for liability that's related to a constitutional right. The bill's
0: sponsor, Republican Senator Gary Stubblefield, said he believes the need to protect children from what he called irreversible medical procedures should supersede any question of constitutionality.
6: Every one of those rights you referred to has a duty connected with it. Just because you have the right to free speech doesn't mean you have the right to run into a theater and yell fire. And it doesn't mean just because you have the right to own a firearm to protect your property and your family doesn't mean that you can go out and kill an innocent person.
1: Numerous members of the public testified in Monday's committee meeting that irreversible gender-affirming treatments like surgeries have not been provided to minors in Arkansas. State lawmakers previously banned gender-affirming care for transgender minors in the 2021 legislative session, though that law is currently on hold
5: pending the outcome of a legal challenge. The Alma Education and Arts Foundation presents Cross That River at the Scokus Performing Arts Center, February 25th at 7.30 p.m. Cross That River is based on real history in which black cowboys lived and helped settle the West and takes audiences on a musical journey into why black lives matter. Tickets at 479-632-2129 or SkokusPAC.org. Arkansas PBS is celebrating 40 years of Arkansas Week, February 17th at 7.30 p.m., with an encore episode February 19th at 10 a.m. This program traces the history of Arkansas PBS's flagship public affairs program and why Arkansas Week is viewed by thousands each week for news analysis and election and legislative coverage in the state. More information at myarkansapbs.org. Later today on Ozarks, why do we love something from the bottom of
1: our heart or fall in love? For this Valentine's Day, our militant grammarian, Catherine Sheralds, investigates idioms associated with love and romance. That's later this hour on Ozarks at Large.
7: KUAF's concert series, The Lunch Hour, will be taking place on Saturday, February 25th during the 5th Annual Black-Owned Northwest Arkansas Business Expo at the Fayetteville Town Center from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. We will be celebrating Black History Month alongside more than 60 black-owned businesses in the region, while enjoying food from local black-owned food vendors and music from artist and filmmaker Mike Day. For more information on the event, visit KUAF.com and look for The Lunch Hour.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Elliot West's new book, Continental Reckoning, The American West in the Age of Expansion, offers a thorough and thoroughly entertaining examination of how the United States moved westward, changed everything that followed. West, alumni distinguished professor of history at the University of Arkansas, writes about the discovery of gold, a massive migration from the east, the relationship between new white settlers and the native people who had already lived there, and so much more. Thursday night, he'll deliver a Kennedy lecture related to the book at the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History in Fayetteville. Yesterday, he came to the Carver Center for Public Radio, and I asked him how he plans to narrow down his talk from such a vast subject matter.
7: What I came to uh, believe and understand as I I researched it over a lot of years uh, is that uh, the story of the birth of the American West, which is roughly between the 1840s and around eighteen eighty. Uh, it's a great American story just in and of itself. But it's also absolutely essential uh, to understanding uh, a second story, which is the uh, emergence, the birth of modern America. Uh, the two really are uh, historical twins, uh, happen at the same time. And, and like a lot of twins, you really can't understand one, <laughs> one without the other. So what I'm going to concentrate uh, in my talk uh, this week uh, is, is on that. Uh, because you know we uh, – most of us grow up thinking of the West as this place apart. It's this uh, romanticized uh, bit of our history out there, cowboys and Indians and uh, gold rushes and so forth. And, and um, there was a wonderful book on this published fairly recently uh, that, that goes into this idea that it's this its this exotic experience – seen as this exotic experience in American life. The title of that book uh, is The American Elsewhere. Mm. That's how we often think of it. Uh, What I have come to believe absolutely is that in fact it's not the American elsewhere. It's a part of our history that is absolutely entwined with the rest of it and we cannot possibly understand Uh, the United States of the 20th and 21st century without taking into consideration what happened uh, as the West was formed, came into being uh, and became integrated part of our our national life.
0: We know that the Louisiana Purchase added a lot of land Mm -hmm. to the United States. But it doesn't compare
7: to the vast <laughs> square miles that are going to be added yeah. all yeah. the way to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. If you consider this uh, this period of expansion, uh, which has really three parts, the annexation of Texas, the acquisition of Pacific Northwest, the, the war with Mexico that gave us California and the Southwest, if we consider this as one event, uh, that uh, expansion represented about half again as much – As the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, If you put that in in modern global terms, uh, we added between uh, 1845 and 1848, just three years, we added land uh, that's just a little bit less than modern India. So so if you begin to think, you can ask yourself the question, you know, what. What would happen today if we, were to, if we were to increase our size and our resources and our peoples and our geography uh, by that amount of land? This, of course, is also an incredibly diverse uh, place geographically in human terms. What would that be? You know, things would change, oh, uh, yeah. and things sure changed back then because of this expansion. And, and, and there's no one thing
0: that leads it. I mean, there's the race to build rail. But, but as you write, uh, somebody looks down at his boots, <laughs> <laughs> and that yeah. really gets us going.
7: Yeah. Well, it really is. I call it the great coincidence in, our, in my first chapter. It really is really quite extraordinary. Um, the treaty that ended in the Mexican War and ended this three this uh, you know this three stage period of expansion was uh, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. That was signed uh, in a suburb outside of Mexico City on February the second, eighteen uh, forty eight. On January twenty fourth. 1848. That's that's nine days before Nicholas Trist signed that treaty. Uh, James Marshall, who was a New Jersey carpenter helping to overseeing the construction of a mill on the American River in Northern California, found this little pleck of gold uh, that set loose uh, what was by far the greatest uh, outpouring of gold in human history up until that time. Uh, incredible. So these two things happened. I mean, simultaneously, virtually, virtually at the same moment. Uh, and when you add those two things together, the, the acquisition of land and then the discovery of this storehouse of wealth on the far edge of that land, um, you can begin to get a sense that um, things are going to happen. <laughs> things well, change. And throw in a
0: healthy helping of hyperbole from mm-hmm. newspaper headlines yeah, and from yeah, yeah. and from scammers and from you know people who, <laughs> who who want to who see this as a rebranding of the United States opportunity sure you just have this mass migration
7: oh well, it, it was enormous and not just of course within this nation it was from all right. over the world uh, this is uh, what i call in the book uh, the world's convention uh, this uh, extraordinary movement of people from all over the pacific world uh, from uh, from uh, from europe uh, from throughout South America uh, into into the, into the far west. Uh, and the first effect that it had, uh, you know, when we expanded the idea of manifest destiny mm-hmm. held that this was going to lead to a uh, a new era of American greatness. Uh, and in a way, in the long run, it did. But The first effect of all of this was to nearly destroy this country. Mm-hmm. It nearly tore us apart exactly because. So much land was, so much desirable land was added. Uh, so much wealth was found in it. Uh, it, it created uh, uh, rivalries and distinctions, and you know, and and uh, uh, debates within this country, focusing, of course, on North and South over the issue of slavery, that nearly destroyed the republic. Uh, that was the first effect of expansion.
0: Well, and you also had uh, lawmakers, legislators, congressmen in Washington D.C. who had no idea what the West was like. No. and they were trying, whether it be agriculture or whatever, they were trying to impose eastern, you know, eastern United States rules and ideas on the West. And it wasn't working. (laughs) uh, Plant more trees, and it'll rain. That's right.
7: (laughs) That's right. Yeah, the idea of rain follows the plow. The idea is, uh, you know, the idea is is that uh, well, okay, it doesn't rain enough at the farm out there. But if you go out there and farm, it'll rain enough. You know, has there ever been a a more blindly optimistic uh, idea than that in all of American history? There's something about the West that does that. Mm. It just inspires dreams. You know. Uh, Sometimes they work. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of times they don't. So many things
0: are connected here: uh, innovation, geology, because the great bone hunting starts mm-hmm. because fossils mm-hmm. are found in the West.
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'll talk about this week is that um, one effect of this uh, was that the American West uh, in the latter part of the 19th century uh, was arguably the world's greatest scientific laboratory. Uh, in field after field after field after field. Uh, New fields, relatively new fields like um, uh, anthropology and archaeology, older fields like geology, uh, meteorology, right, (laughs) everything you think of and uh, as you mentioned, Kyle, uh, paleontology Uh, and this of course directly engaged what was the most contentious, uh, most volatile idea of the day and that was Charles Darwin's ideas of evolution uh, by natural selection. And it was out of this, these, this research, in the, out of this activity in the West uh, that, in fact, uh, the two most – and I'll talk about this uh, – the two most significant um, discoveries confirming Darwin's ideas uh, came out of the Great Plains, out of Kansas, Nebraska, and Montana.
0: It, it's amazing. That I'm talking with Elliot West, uh, author of the new book, Continental Reckoning, the American West in the Age of Expansion. I love, and and we'll get to this in a minute. There, there are big issues about sovereignty and race, and what happened to the people that were already there. But I also like the little tidbits you share, like camels. People tried to bring camels into the West <laughs> because they thought they would do better than sure, horses. Sure,
7: sure. Yeah. Especially the Southwest, of course. Yeah, uh, the Southwest. The, uh, yeah, the desert, uh, the desert Southwest. Yes, that was one of the um, uh, one of the efforts by the, by the federal government, um, in particular before the Civil War, and the greatest advocate for bringing camels to the American Southwest was Jefferson Davis uh, who at the right. time he was a secretary of war and he was he was of course trying to as a as a, as a Southerner and a slave owner um, from Mississippi he was attempting to do what he, whatever he could to uh, to to connect the American Southeast to the American West uh, and its opportunity to make the west uh, a mirror of uh, life and institutions in the south and he thought that uh, going across the establishing this link across the the desert in part about the use of camels would do that uh, and, and one we, more idea that didn't work that <laughs> right <well. laughs>
0: and we actually know the last camel the, la- the last Topsy. <laughs> <laughs> i love Topsy, that little that's right. detail that's right there
7: right. was also it's uh, a camel that was killed at the battle of vicksburg uh, so they show up and sort of sprinkle wow. through this whole uh, uh this whole story yeah, yeah.
0: Of course, Native populations are, you know, a huge part of this story. I did not realize that at one point in this effort to – because the idea was to make them, quote, cultured or civilized. Of course. They needed to farm and they needed to become Christian. And at one point, different uh, tribes were handed over to different um, uh, denominations. That's
7: correct. That's right. This is under a U.S. grant, uh, President Grant, after the war. Um, Now – uh, Christianization had been part of this effort to uh, integrate Native peoples into Amer- American life and culture from, from the very beginning. But what happens under Grant is this becomes formal. Uh, what he did was just divvy up uh, these different tribal groups across the West and, and, uh, and hand them out to different, different denominations. You know, the Episcopalians, we got the Sioux. Uh, the and Presbyterians the, got the Nez Perce. Uh, the, and the
0: idea then was the Episcopalians would convert? The the Sioux?
7: Oh, sure. Sure. That that, that was the whole idea. Uh, The idea idea was this. Uh, If these – this is the formal government position. Mm -hmm. If native peoples are going to survive under these extraordinary wrenching changes, uh, they had to become like us. We had to transform them into uh, people who would fit into mainline American society. How would you do that? You do it uh, in three ways. Uh, you bring them in at the basic level of American economic life, which is, of course, agriculture. You turn them into farmers. That had been the American ideal from Jefferson on. Never mind
0: um, what they've been doing to survive for of course, and millennia. No, and, yeah. never,
7: and never mind what the land will allow them to do. Right. This was not, as you said before, you know. this is They're thinking of the West in Eastern terms. You, you, you cannot farm the way you do in the East. But nevertheless, uh, we'll, in effect, require you to do that. Uh, you must uh, – you must also uh, be schooled uh, and, mm-hmm. in, in, our, in our educational system. And this was not just the three R's. Uh, this was you know, cultural schooling, turning you, into, turning you into people like the American mainstream. Uh, and finally, you must become Christians. Uh, now, along the way, of course, it's also language. Uh, schooling means you, can, you give up your native languages in, in favor of English. This, so the idea is that this is the, – the argument was that this is for the Indians' own good. And the people who backed this the most were called the Friends of the Indian. It was a formal group in New York. Um, but, of course, uh, what, it, what, it, what this was was an act of extraordinary uh, cultural arrogance. It was basically cultural genocide trying to destroy very consciously, very consciously trying to destroy uh, native ways of life in order to save them.
0: And generations later, those who wanted to conduct some sort of cultural – Erasure of their own would look back at that as an example.
7: Yes, it's uh, one of the darker lessons of this. Uh, there were those who um, <laughs> looked to the United States during these years uh, as a model of this kind of uh, cultural destruction, including, uh, gotta say, mm-hmm. including uh, National Socialist uh, Hitler mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the Nazis in Germany. They looked back admiringly on American efforts uh, to uh, destroy these cultures.
0: There's also economics in this book, the, the rise and fall of the buffalo hunters mm-hmm. because suddenly leather is in high demand. People mm-hmm. want belts and things. And it's just I, – I, this has got to be taught in economic classes. Like this great supply and you're making money because you're killing and butchering these animals at a rapid pace and then mm-hmm. suddenly poof.
7: They're gone. Yeah. Yeah, they're gone. Yeah. That's part of this. Uh, and I'll get a larger story here, uh, Kyle. Is that uh, American resources are being integrated not just into a national economy, but an international, uh, a global, uh, uh, capitalist market-oriented system. So everything is a potential commodity, mm-hmm. which sees everything as a is a potential number in a market. Uh, and if those numbers go up, you know the the value, the the market value of something goes up. Uh, then the numbers of those. Things, whether they are bison or, or land or whatever, uh, goes down as it is uh, as it is required, as it is acquired and transformed and marketed and sent, marketed across the world.
0: So many big stories connected with this age of expansion, and some I had never heard of, like the locusts. <laughs> Massive <laughs> clouds of locusts. Yeah, yeah,
7: and they too go extinct. Yep, yep. Uh, we tried to do that. Actually, uh, this was uh, the government attempted. To exterminate the locusts. but it wasn't. They failed. Mm-hmm. It became extinct f- for an entirely different reason, and that was the uh, that that was the com- the the advance of the agricultural and ranching frontiers into parts of Montana, where the the sort of these uh, breeding beds of these locusts occur. Uh, and as these farmers and ranchers came in and and, and, and transformed that land, they were also wiping out uh, the breeding population of these locusts. Uh, you know. Uh, Biologists uh, uh, refer to biomass, that is what you, you take a given amount of land, an acre, and you ask the question, OK, of the bison living on that, on that acre of land, what is the total weight of those bison? That's the biomass. Right. The biomass of the locusts at their full swarming was greater than the biomass of bison on the Great Plains. They they weighed more. <laughs> they weighed mm-hmm. more together than all the buffaloes. All the buffaloes at the height of the bison population in the Great Plains. And by the end of the 19th century, they were gone. Wow. They were gone. One more case of this. Uh, Transformation of, of, of the of the western half of the United States uh, through these changes.
0: Finally, you mentioned that when we look to the west, there's imagination, there's mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. awe, there is myth and legend. And you do a fine job, not heavy-handed at all, of removing a lot of those myths <laughs> and
7: telling us this story you've heard.
6: Mm, not so much,
7: <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's something about the West that inspires uh, – uh, sort, of, sort of think of it as the, the great American dreamscape, you know, it's this place where, where it simply somehow calls us out to imagine to imagine things, uh, uh, to, to construct this uh, sort of our own reality out there. Um, and a lot of it is beautiful. You know, I, uh, some one of the the, of the two great American cultural exports uh, is the Western, along with the detective story, mm-hmm. uh, and so and you know I love them. Everybody loves Western movies uh, and these other Western myths, um, but that, not to say that they are uh, historically correct. Right. Let's say,
0: but it's still it still ties I think if you've never seen a John Ford movie, you go to Monument Valley, you're still just yeah in awe.
7: It is. That's right. That's right. The fact is uh, that the American West is in a way sort of the American elsewhere mm-hmm. geographically if nothing else. It's this – I love the West. I, I'm a native Southerner but I have grown – I'm a native – I'm a transformed Westerner. Um, the Western landscape is is overwhelming to me uh, and sure, the myth gets, uh, conveys that gets, that, gets that across to us as well. Thank God.
0: Uh Can't wait to see your talk at the Prior Center. Uh, Thanks so much for
7: coming in. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, as always.
0: Elliot West's new book is Continental Reckoning, the American West in the Age of Expansion. He'll talk about the book Thursday evening, beginning at 6 at the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History in downtown Fayetteville. Lecture is
2: free and open to the public. Copies of the book will be available. Renee Merrill is a doctoral student at the University of Arkansas. She's researching the association among social media use, personality, and depression, and her research suggests that some youths who use social media heavily could develop depression within months, regardless of their personality type.
6: The literature does show that the average social media use in the U.S. is around two to four hours a day, and researchers have also suggested that One or two hours a day really hasn't been linked to depression, but when using within four to six hours a day or beyond, it becomes a risk factor.
2: Merrill explains more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research and economic development podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, at ArkansasResearch.UARC.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow, Alzheimer's Association advocates from all over Arkansas will be at the state capitol to encourage lawmakers to support policy decisions connected to Alzheimer's and dementia. Among those items, the establishment for Alzheimer's disease training requirements for home care providers and the creation of the position of dementia coordinator. David Cook is the senior policy manager with the Alzheimer's Association Arkansas chapter, and he's with me on the phone. David, welcome back to Ozarks at Large.
6: Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having us on this morning.
0: You bet. Let's start with the requirements for Alzheimer's disease training for home care providers. This is actually, uh, I think, taking the form of House Bill 1267 from Representative Julie Mayberry, if eventually law. What would this require?
6: Yes, this uh, specifically outlines the type of training we would like to have home care, home care providers provide. Um, it um, outlines uh, four hours of specific dementia training. Um, requirements, um, including communication, behavior strategies, uh, learning how to deal with certain sorts of behaviors that are associated with dementia. Um, you know, home, home care providers provide an essential service for um, individuals with dementia and Alzheimer's who prefer to remain in age in place at their homes. Um, and so we want to make sure that the home care that they receive is, is optimal care. Um, this House bill has had really bipartisan support in both chambers. Um, and we're excited to announce that it did clear the Senate and it's on its way to the governor's desk where it awaits her signature.
0: You're also supporting training for first responders, law enforcement officers, direct care workers. Would these be similar type programs?
6: Sure. Uh, we're excited to announce House Bill 1396 dropped last week. Uh, it was filed by Representative Dwight Tosh um, and it's co-sponsored in the Senate by Sen- Senator Hill. Um, this bill would require um, two hours of initial training in the training academy. Um, for law enforcement and other first responders. Um, The training is specific to um, knowing different strategies in terms of, um, you know, people with Alzheimer's dementia are prone to elope and and wander. And so strategies around how to locate someone, um, how to have those interactions, again, communication strategies and recognizing dementia-specific behaviors to make sure that our members of law enforcement Um, are prepared to have these interactions with our rising population um, but also to to make sure they're trained in de-escalation strategies as well.
0: And when you visited the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio uh, before the legislative session started earlier this winter, you had mentioned the possible position of dementia coordinator. What would that position look like and has there been any movement on this idea?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. There has been quite a few um, conversations happening the last few weeks with uh, the Department of Human Services, uh, the administration, um, and some of the new folks that we have around the table because of the transition of administration. Um, just introducing them to the concept. We have support from the Department of Human Services, and um, we we're comfortable saying we have support of the governor's office at this time. Uh, we think that position will will actually um, this legislation will be filed this session here in the next few weeks. Um, this position we think makes the most sense at the Department of Human Services, and the goal behind this decision is to ensure that the state's response to Alzheimer's and other dementia is coordinated within state government. Um, Alzheimer's has an impact on the Medicaid system; uh, it impacts um, just about everything. The workforce, the healthcare workforce uh, especially, um, and so it's important that the, the state's response is coordinated. That we make sure that we're not we're not duplicating services. Um, and, and to make sure that we are you know, spending our federal money that we have coming into the state wisely. And so the, the state needs a coordinated response. So we're excited about the possibility of introducing legislation that would create this position um, and look forward to working with the agencies to implement it as well. And this would be a full-time paid position? This will be a full-time position that is specific to dementia uh, within the Department of Human Services. There is precedence uh, for positions like these. We do have a diabetes coordinator. Uh, We have other chronic diseases that have their own coordinators uh, within the Department of Health. Um, And so we're just asking that we create one um, for a population that we know is, um, as we've talked about before, is is rising quickly. Um, Over 60,000 Arkansans currently living with Alzheimer's um, and that doesn't include those living with the other forms of dementia. So this is going to be an epidemic that continues to increase in the next few years. So it's it's, uh, it's very important we have a coordinated response um, to this issue.
0: Well, tomorrow, advocates for Alzheimer's Association also, I think, are going to promote secured funding for dementia caregivers. What would you like to see happen with this?
6: So, uh, yeah, we are um, excited that the agency, the Department of Human Services, understands the value of respite care. Um, we do know that they have included funding for respite services within their budget. So we're continuing to monitoring that legis- legislation as it makes its way through the process just to ensure that we, we support it, um, particularly our funding is captured within the DHS budget. Um, but tomorrow, we'll talk specifically about tomorrow. We have hundreds of um, advocates from across the state gathering in Little Rock. To raise awareness to this issue, it's is such a big day, such an important day, because there's so many new members in the House and the Senate. And so we want to make sure that we, we tell our story, tell, tell Arkansas's Alzheimer's story, and show up big uh, so that they can understand the impact between, uh, that Alzheimer's is having on Arkansas families across the state.
0: David Cook is the Senior Policy Manager with the Alzheimer's Association Arkansas Chapter. Tomorrow, advocates will be at the state capitol to discuss dementia care with lawmakers. David, thank you for your time.
6: Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great day.
1: Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season on Saturday, March 11th at Walton Arts Center, performing music from Sona's debut album release featuring groundbreaking new music that blends acoustic and electric sounds, including works from Paul Haas, Trevor New, and more. After intermission, Sona musicians will raise the roof with a joyously beautiful Symphony No. 3 by Brahms. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, putting together a year's worth of exhibits at Crystal Bridges.
6: Letters are sent out, rationales for the significance of the show, the scholarship, the new perspectives, all go to making a case so that the person or the institution that owns the work would be willing to lend it.
0: What we'll experience at Crystal Bridges the rest of 2023 tomorrow on Ozarks at Large.
1: Tickets for most of the announced shows for this year's season at the Walmart Amp are on sale now, but one concert will have tickets go on sale later this week. The Dave Matthews Band will be at Amp in Rogers on May 23rd, and tickets go on sale February 17th through the usual Walton Arts Center ticketing outlets.
0: A tribute to a big musical talent requires a big event, and the February 26th concert to support O.C. Fisher sounds like it will not disappoint. O.C. has been singing on stages throughout the region for decades, and Sunday, February 26th, there will be a benefit concert at George's Majestic Lounge to help her as she deals with some medical concerns. Divas on Fire will headline with the O.C. Fisher Band and Special Guest Plus, a St. James Gospel tribute. You can find tickets by searching A Celebration to support O.C. Fisher at Stubbs.net.
1: Divas on Fire is a great band name. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. The Concordia Choir of Moorhead, Minnesota is performing two concerts in the area this March as part of its 2023 national tour of the Central United States. The choir will perform in Bentonville on Tuesday, March 7th at First United Methodist Church on 2nd Street and in Fort Smith at First United Methodist Church on 15th Street on Tuesday, March 14th. The Concordia Choir is featured in the Emmy Award-winning Concordia Christmas Concerts which are broadcast nationally on PBS. The choir's most recent CD is O oh Radiant Dawn.
0: about the choir and their upcoming concerts can be found at theconcordiachoir.org
5: On the next Resilient Black Women Joy and Denisha start the new year talking about resolutions and giving yourself grace and understanding during this time when everything around us seems to slow down
3: Look to nature for when you think about when you should be putting lots of energy behind things and he's like nature is at rest and I was like
1: like this, <laughs> I like this
3: idea of um, everything else is hibernating, um, and here we are thinking like I need to do 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 and get get get.
5: Joy and Denisha also talk about resolutions for their nonprofit organization, Resilient Black Women, whose mission is to dismantle stigmas and increase access to mental health care for Black women, women of color, and women everywhere. Recently recognized as one of the top six podcasts focusing on black wellness and health by Amaka Studio, you can listen for free at KUAF.com. And anywhere you get your podcasts.
0: This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Lloyd News Studio, our Milton grammarian, Catherine Sherald.
8: Hi, Kyle. Hello. Do you know today is Valentine's of Day? Of course, yes, February 14th. Have you prepared for it, or have you and Laura celebrated so many that it's just another day?
0: No, the, the challenge we have this year is because during the first part of the week, when the legislature is in session, she is in Little sure. Rock, so we are apart. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh,
8: Absence makes the heart. There you go. Burner. There you go. <laughs> well, for the lovers out there of each other and of the English language, mm-hmm. let's look at some idioms about love. Okay, Kyle, what does "from the bottom of my heart" mean?
0: It's the most special, sincere kind of love or affection you can have.
8: Yes. One theory from ancient Greece was that the heart is like a container that fills up with feeling. Mm. So the bottom of the heart is usually the fullest, sure. Kind of like a tank that continuously refills itself. The bottom is never really empty; hence, the bottom of the heart contains the fullest motion.
0: Mm-hmm.
8: T- uh, Kyle, are you the type to wear your heart on your sleeve?
0: Oh, I think it depends. About maybe sometimes, not always. What does
8: it mean uh, to be incredibly
0: vulnerable and to be, you know, open? Yeah. So open about display how one's yes. emotions
8: openly. Yeah. Yeah. This idiom is said to have first appeared in William Shakespeare's Otello in 1604 when Iago decides to act as if he is wearing his heart on his sleeve so that he would seem open, honest, and faithful. Oh! In practice, however, the phrase is derived from the Middle Ages when knights would wear colored ribbons on their arms to show which lady they supported and fought for. Okay. Kyle, why do fools fall in love?
0: Well... <laughs> that's the age-old question, isn't it?
8: Actually, why does anyone fall in love as opposed to, say, rise in love?
0: Ah, that's a great question. I would assume because you're losing your balance. You're, you're not thinking straight. Well, you're so head over heels, mm-hmm. right?
8: Yeah. yeah. The phrase is an old one, but the exact Time of origin is not known. The word fall is used in the expression to convey the sense that starting to love someone is something unexpected yeah. and unplanned, just as falling is unexpected yeah. and unplanned. Kyle, I've watched your career here at KUF for decades. I think it's safe to say that your service to our community is a labor of love.
0: Well, what is I a mean, labor of love? I've always thought labor of love means you're only doing it. Because maybe you want to do it. But, yeah. but, you know, you're not compensated in any other way than fulfillment.
8: Well, I something you won't say, but I know—I <laughs> don't know your salary, but I know salaries around here having to do with me. Yes. So. so it's work done to attain love yes. or satisfaction, not money. Yes. In Genesis 29-20, one learns that Jacob lived with his uncle Laban, I guess, in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia right. When Jacob— asked Laban if he could marry his daughter Rachel, he agreed under the condition that Jacob would have to work oh. for him for seven years. Thus, he labored for love. Oh, Well, there's more to the story. On the day of the wedding, Jacob pulled off the bride's veil, revealing Laban's less attractive gir- daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. Although furious, Jacob worked another seven years to earn the hand of Rachel. <laughs> there's so
0: much wrong with that. <laughs> I
8: know.
0: So much wrong with that. <sighs>
8: Why do you think we might have a crush on someone? What does that mean?
0: Well, to have a crush is like not necessarily unrequited love, but, boy, you are just all in.
8: Extreme infatuation.
0: All you're thinking Mm -hmm. about, yes.
8: Researching the origin of having a crush can lead you down many paths. One of the most bizarre is from the early 1800s in England. When the word crush was used to refer to a social ga- gathering or dance. Let's go to the crush. Hmm. Women were wearing very large puffy skirts uh-huh. that led to dancers being crushed together. <laughs> The phrase evolved to mean a romantic entanglement at a crowded social gathering. Love that.
0: (laughs) Absolutely love that.
8: The euphemism originated in the United States as a slang term about 1914. It was institutionalized by the popular song in the 20s written by the Gershwins, who, uh, who crooned, I've got a crush on you, sweetie pie.
0: And I will tell you that I didn't really hear it used as crushing until a few years ago mm. Like I'm crushing oh, I think
8: I, You know Actually I think that's A new use uh, In that explanation I, Which I edited out mm. Someone said crushing on I love someone. that
0: term too Yeah And I, you can uh, be crushing on I've heard it used Ice cream
8: Exactly <laughs> Yeah or,
0: or you know A new album or yeah, something. Sure, yeah Sure
8: sure Yeah uh, Kyle did you ever get A love letter marked To swack?
0: Sealed with a kiss Yeah No I did not But sealed with a kiss <laughs>
8: Uh, and what does that mean?
0: Shield, uh, mm-hmm. It means I. I think back to black and white movies. Doing this, you're you're writing, you're, you're, you're betrothed or whomever. Mm-hmm. You you put the note in the envelope and then you lick it, seal it, and then kiss, kiss it. it. Yeah, for good luck or yeah. just for. And yeah.
8: and the, the letter that was written is written with love and care. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In Ken Follett's *The Pillars of the Earth*, there is reference to a kiss of peace. King Henry of England and Thomas Becket were mm. said to seal their agreement with a kiss. During medieval times, contracts with illiterate parties were not considered legal until a signer wrote an X mm. to represent Saint Andrew. Oh. Didn't know that. Oh, okay. Then, to prove sincerity, each signer would then kiss the X. So yeah. The next idiom changed over the years. It flip flopped. Although we know it as head over heels, oh, you we, mentioned it yes. ago, it began as heels over head. Hmm. What do you think about that?
0: They both make, uh, they seem the same to me. I mean, one, you're, you're tumbling. But doesn't
8: one mean more, uh, make more sense? If you're talking about being out of norm. Right. Starry-eyed and heel, crushing. Heels over head yeah. would be. Yeah, well, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Well, I didn't think about it till I read here. <laughs> But either way, what does it mean?
0: Oh, well, you're just you're you're maybe not thinking of con- correctly about anything else. You're just sort of in a state.
8: Yeah, feelings of confusion or dizziness yes. for a lover. Yes. Yeah. yes. Originally, heels overhead, the phrase was first coined in the 14th century. It meant to turn a somersault or feelings sure. of joy. It also meant being upside down and not able to do anything, (laughs) Perfect, as love can make us feel sometimes. In 1834, the reversed phrase of head over heels appeared referring to love in the narrative of the life of Davy Crockett. I'm not sure Davy and David are the same. Uh, I'd better do that. In 1834, the reversed phrase of head over heels appeared referring to love in the narrative of the life of David Crockett. Okay. Kyle, what does love is blind mean?
0: It means you will forgive anything. Yeah. The person you're in love with.
8: Absolutely. You love who you love, regardless of the logic. Coined by William Shakespeare around 1596, the phrase appears in several of his plays, including Two Gentlemen of Verona, Henry V, and The Merchant of Venice. Actually, in 2004, researchers in London posited that love blindness is not just a figure of speech. Oh. They found that the feelings of love will suppress the areas of the brain that control logical thought. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes <laughs> we sense. We know that, yes. don't we? <laughs> yes. And finally, Kyle, what does it mean to be nuts about someone? You're head over heels. You're all in. <laughs> You're crushing. Yeah. Yes. You're crazy. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It seems that the word, the use of the word nuts to mean crazy about something evolved over a long time. Apparently, the British loved nuts because as early as 1610, they were using the term nuts to mean any source of pleasure. Oh,
0: like that's the nuts? Yeah. Like, oh, I like that. With
8: the bomb. What, yeah, that's the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by 1785, the meaning evolved to being fond of. Mm-hmm. But by 1846, to be off one's nut means a person had gone insane. You know, I've heard
0: that off one's nut, and I've always thought that that is not referring to someone's head, like a melon. Yeah, okay, yeah.
8: all right. That's because the word nut was slang for head. Oh, yeah. Americans uh, are thought to be the ones that connected the two meanings. Eventually, to be nuts about something meant you loved them so much that you had gone a little crazy yeah. for it. I hope everyone listening has a lovely Valentine's Day.
0: Our militant grammarian is Catherine
7: Scherlitz.
1: This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Elkins. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today include Daniel Carruth and Catherine Sheralds. Our Director of Community Engagement at KUAF is Jasper Logan. Additional content today came from the news staff at KUAR in Little Rock,
0: From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. We told you that tomorrow, a conversation about what's going on at Crystal Bridges for the rest of the year— we're going to hear a conversation on
1: tomorrow's show that took place last week. That's right. We had a live podcast recording on Thursday at the squire Hagen Outreach Center on Willow about black erasure in northwest Arkansas. Really, really great conversation. I've heard from a lot of folks who loved the conversation. You'll get to hear that conversation in full tomorrow on the Undisciplined podcast feed. You'll also hear a portion of that in tomorrow's show on Ozarks at Large. So that and uh, a lot more on tomorrow's show at noon and 7. But wait, Matthew, what if I can't listen at noon or 7? Well, lucky for you, we've got a couple different ways that you can catch up on our show. If you're the kind of person who listens to podcasts, you can find Ozarks at Large in your podcast feed. Or you can check out OzarksAtLarge.com. You can find individual stories that we've reported throughout the day, throughout the week. You can find links to all of that stuff. OzarksAtLarge.com. By the way, speaking of undisciplined, there is another live undis- undisciplined coming up. That's right. February 21st at the African and African American Studies Room in Memorial Hall on the University of Arkansas campus. You can find out details about who will be speaking, what the topic will be. And for other live events that we're having, you can go to KUAF.com slash live podcast. That's
0: Tuesday the 21st, which is one week from tonight. That's one week from tonight. That's wild. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. You can find out more about us at ozarksatlarge.com. I am Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew
1: Moore. Thanks for being with us. Be well.